Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Manager of Nursing Education for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Our guest today is Betty Farrell, Professor and Director of the Department of Nursing Research and Education for the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in California. Betty's an RN, a PhD, and is a Master of the Arts in Theology, Ethics, and Culture. In addition, Dr. Farrell holds the designation of Fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and Fellow in Palliative Care Nursing. Betty's been in nursing for over four decades and has focused her clinical experience and expertise in research, both in pain management, quality of life, and also in palliative care. Betty's a co-chairperson for the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care. She's authored 11 books, including the Oxford Textbook of Palliative Nursing, nursing excuse me, which is in its fifth edition that was published in 2019. This is published through Oxford University, and Betty has also contributed to over 450 publications in peer-reviewed journals and text. Betty's co-author of The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Nursing. Dr. Farrell's been named one of the 30 visionaries in the field by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and most recently was inducted and elected as an elected member to the National Academy of Medicine. Membership into the National Academy of Medicine is one of the highest honors awarded in the field of health and medicine, recognizing people who have demonstrated outstanding professional achievement and commitment to service. Thank you, Betty, for being with us today. We're so looking forward to hearing your story and to quote you the story of this sacred work, this important work, and how what we do really, truly matters. It's an honor. Thank you. If you could take a few moments of our podcast and tell us about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm very glad to participate. Uh, this is my 42nd year as a nurse. Um, actually, in the spring, it will be 43 years now that I think about it. So that's a, you know, really, uh, it is a time when I'm reflecting on my career and, uh, and I have so cherished being a part of HPNA and, and of this world of palliative care, which has really started and evolved during my lifetime. So I feel very privileged to, to really be a part of it. Um, Currently, I am at City of Hope National Medical Center, which is in Los Angeles. I've been here for 30 years, and um, my uh, position here is as a researcher and professor, and um, I, in that role, I'm involved in a number of research projects, and then I also direct the End-of-Life Nursing Education Consortium, or ELNIC, project focused on training nurses and other professionals in palliative care. So that's my main day-to-day responsibilities. Well, thank you, Betty. And I, I have done some research in preparation for this interview today, and I came across some, some interesting stories. So if you'll indulge me here, I'd like to get you to, to share some insight with some of your stories. Um, you've shared that your entry in the field has been a calling and that the work we do is sacred. Uh, that a year into your nursing career, you had an epiphany that literally occurred in a closet in Oklahoma. 
So I would really like for you to share with us and the nurses that are listening today that are considering entering a career in palliative care, what that epiphany was in the closet in Oklahoma. <laughs> sure. Well, it's it's fun to share the story. I've, I've shared it a couple of times and it's sort of now, you know, referred to as my, my closet story. So, um, <clears throat> but it's a great memory and it's one of those things that happened now, you know, 40 plus years ago, and yet it's really vivid. I, I, as you asked the question, I literally can have a perfect image in my mind. Um, so the story is that I graduated from nursing school um, at barely the age of 21, and I immediately went to work um, in an oncology unit in a hospital in Oklahoma City. And at that time, remember, the word palliative care did not exist in our vocabulary. There were zero hospice programs in my entire state, and there were a handful of hospices in the entire United States. So I started my career really almost pre-hospice and definitely pre-palliative care. But I went to work on an inpatient oncology unit, and the interesting thing is oncology was new. You know, prior to that time, people with cancer were just scattered throughout the hospital. If you had ovarian cancer, you were probably over on the postpartum or GYN unit. If you, you know, had prostate cancer, you might be on a urology unit, but there was no even dedicated oncology space. And so the hospital had decided it was time to develop an oncology unit. And the primary motivation was because they were beginning to give chemotherapy and they realized they needed to have a specialized unit where nurses could be trained in giving chemotherapy. So I was 21 years old, you know, all the energy in the world um, focused on starting this new career in this brand new thing called oncology. And um, one of the patient problems that then became very obvious to me was mouth sores. Because at that time, our patients just had such horrendous mucositis. And there were so few supportive care interventions at the time. We didn't have good nausea treatment. We didn't have good approaches to pain. We didn't have good treatments for mucositis. But as a clinical nurse, I was really, really interested in symptom management and, and really how this disease was impacting the quality of life of patients. So I went to, you know, went to work after work one day, I drove to the local American Cancer Society office and I, you know, walked into that, that ACS office and said, you know, I'm looking for ways to help my patients with mucositis. And someone told me that you had a brochure here um, that had some information. So, you know, do you have anything I, that would help? And so they're very gracious. And so the um, you know, the person there working at the desk took me sort of down the hall, and literally it was a closet. And in this closet was just um, long shelves, and then on these shelves were all the ACS brochures, pamphlets, educational booklets, you know, about nutrition and um, mammography and, you know, all of the new topics in oncology. And... <clears throat> I had been a nurse for a few months at that point in time, and already I was really, really just so drawn to our patients that were at the end of life or patients who had very late disease, which was most patients at that time. 
And <clears throat> I think in my, you know, in my soul, I already was really so drawn to what it was like for these patients who were not going to survive their disease and, um, and many who would die. And yet at a time when talking about death was absolutely forbidden, we just did not even go there at all. Um, <clears throat> so I was, you know, this person left me alone in this closet and basically said, you know, take whatever is helpful to you. So I was standing in the closet and I was, you know, walking down the little row and looking on the shelves and finding these brochures about nutrition and mammography. And, and in fact, there was, you know, one uh, material about mucositis. But as I was walking through that closet, I came upon um, a, a small booklet that was written by Jean Benaliel. And Jean um, was a leading nurse who at that time, very early 1970s, had worked in uh, Washington State and in San Francisco area. And she was really, uh, you know, a colleague along with, with people like Florence Wald, who started the first hospice in America as a nurse and um, very influenced by Dame Cecily Saunders at St. Christopher's. But Jean Benalil had written this book about caring for the patient at the end of life. And I, you know, I looked down amidst all of this, you know, healthy nutrition and um, mammography information. And here was this brochure and it just took my breath away. I, I, I just couldn't imagine there was anything written, you know, about this topic. And I literally, you know, I, I just was drawn to it. I took the brochure and I stood there in that closet. I mean, now I look back and I think how funny it was, but I, I stood there in the closet and I read the whole brochure. I read the whole booklet because I couldn't move. I just literally couldn't move because the words on those pages about our silence and about in not talking with patients about these issues, how we were making the suffering worse. Um, I read, you know, these words about how we can help patients to have a more peaceful death. So I, you know, it really was a turning point for me. And I think it really was sort of that transition where even though the field of palliative care didn't exist, I think it was a moment where I began to think of myself, I mean, certainly still an oncology nurse, but I, I definitely knew that my calling was to those patients for whom they likely would not survive their disease and also very drawn to those patients whose lives would end um, you know, in the near future because of their disease. So, so that was my closet experience. And um, it, I can tell you that the words I read that day, holding that brochure, thinking about those words still influence every day of my professional life. Betty, that's just a beautiful story. And it, it makes, makes me self-reflect back onto that moment when I knew that end of life care was going to be my my calling. I hope that it's going to bring that same reflection point to to other nurses that are listening today because that is how we change change care and those moments in time. And hearing you're telling the story, uh, it, it was a great reflection moment. And and thank you for for sharing that with our group and with the listeners. So Betty, I heard an interview 
where you shared that, and I quote, the research part of your career has been about people who are dying, who are overwhelmed, and who are exhausted. How research can tell the story of people who are too tired to tell the story themselves. And I think that that says it all, Betty. And if you could take a few minutes and share with us more about that approach to a research philosophy, enabling our patients to tell the story that are too tired to tell it themselves through research. Yes. I mean, first I would just say that, you know, every day now of my more than 40 years as a nurse, I wake up and thank God that I found this path because I do really believe um, that every day as a nurse is a gift, that we are so incredibly fortunate. Working as a nurse is a very hard job. It's emotionally and physically exhausting, but it is such a privilege. And, you know, nurses, I always say to nursing students, you know, as a nurse, you will do more meaningful work in a week than most people get to do in a lifetime. We, it's amazing what we can do um, every day in our practice. Um, you know, I, I uh, did not have the easiest trip through nursing school. I uh, am someone who struggled. I was challenged. It was a rough course. And I remember vividly, um, you know, making promises to God and saying, please, God, just get me through this nursing program. And I promise I will never go back to school again, ever. Um, and that was my plan. My plan was, you know, just get me out there with the patients, get me in this clinical job, and I will be the happiest person ever, and I will promise I will never go to school. Um, but what happened is about three years into being a clinical nurse, I started realizing that I felt my patients had a lot of stories to share and they had a lot of needs that weren't being met. And I became really, really frustrated. You know, how can I be a better nurse? How can I do a better job of supporting them? And a key issue was that this was the years 1977 to 1980. And so remember when I started my career, the whole world of healthcare and, and especially oncology care was very much focused on the hospital. If you were sick, you came to the hospital. If you needed chemo, you came to the hospital. If you were in the hospital and you know your family wasn't quite ready for you to come home, we kept you in the hospital. If you had a problem at home, pain or you know, nausea, we said, come on in, come to the hospital. And what happened then very dramatically was suddenly the healthcare system said, you've got to go home. You know, DRGs came into being. And so suddenly the entire world of healthcare shifted and we suddenly were hearing, no, they can't come to the hospital. And yes, you've got to get them out the door. They've got to go home. And I was, I couldn't imagine because as an oncology nurse caring for these really sick people, I thought, we're not doing such a great job caring for these patients and solving their, you know, symptom problems here in the hospital. So how on earth are, there man are they managing these problems at home? And so I was seeing, you know, my elderly cancer patients going home with pain and constipation and nausea and cachexia, anxiety and depression to an elderly caregiver. And so, again, you know, far before there were good home-based hospice programs or 
home care services. And so my, at, that was the point in time where I said, I've got to leave the hospital too. If my patients are leaving the hospital, I need to leave the hospital and I'm going to go work in home care because honestly, I, I want to know how do they do this? And I, at the same time, also realized if I wanted to be a change agent, if I really wanted to go beyond just providing really good care to the patients I was assigned on a given day, if I wanted to, you know, really roll that stone up the mountain and make be a force of change, it probably meant that I needed to go back to school, which was a terrible, terrible awakening for me because I promised never to do that. Um, so at the same time, I left the hospital, started working in home care, and also went back to get my master's degree. Um, this was before there were any nurse practitioner um, training programs or before that role existed. And I went back and became a clinical nurse specialist. And my idea was, you know, give me the skills to, to be a change agent and let me see the world from the view of the patient and family at home. And, and really that experience, those first few home visits to leave my kind of sterile environment of the hospital and to go into the living rooms of patients and families, I, you know, was another huge part of my awakening of saying, you know, as nurses, we have such an opportunity to be that voice, to be the eyes, to go back and really to speak for what is it really like for these people 24 hours a day to live this experience of illness? You know, what is it like um, to be asked as a caregiver to do the same, you know, care that a week ago your loved one was in the ICU of a hospital with a lot of professional staff, you know, what does this mean? And so, you know, my career over the years since has very much evolved to be an educator and a researcher, but I, I, I always think of my real job as whatever I'm doing, you know, running an LNET course, leading a study, lecturing, whatever I'm doing, my job is the essence of nursing. And that is I am a nurse, so I may be a nurse educator, I may be a nurse researcher, but I am a nurse. That's my core. And so my job, my calling is to speak for patients and families, to be that voice because they need us. You know, patients, families need nurses to speak their story in a very complex world of healthcare that has only gotten far more complicated since the day I entered practice. So Betty, that takes me to my next question. So when you were returning to school for your master's degree for your clinical nurse specialist role, um, with that, you, you had, you've always referenced that you did it so that you could impact the care you increasingly saw was inadequate for meeting the needs of dying patients and those in pain. As you just said, moving them from the hospital to the home, what were the resources? How did that look? What was that experience for them? And sure. as part of your, your master's program, you had said that you uh, needed to take a research course as part of the credits for that, for that program. And that in that course, of course, you had to, to write your, your paper to coincide with that. And that in writing that paper, you were able to work alongside many hospice pioneers who were 
at that point in time, just starting to use compounded medications like Brompton's cocktail or Brompton's solution. And we were just beginning to introduce opioids like oral morphine to, you know, assist with pain management for patients dying at home. And that you had worked alongside pioneers uh, in the hospice movement at that point. So reflecting back on that, what did you discover about writing that research paper and that contribution of what research could be to nursing? And how has that framed your future career? Yes. Uh, so I went to get my master's as a clinical specialist and uh, very focused on you know, care of patients at home and, and symptom management. And the uh, master's degree required a research project. And so the, my research project um, was oral morphine versus Brompton solution for cancer pain, if you can even imagine. Um, I mean, that really tells you how old I am, right? Because, wow, what a question. And the, the way that I came up on that topic was, you know, this was at a time where we honestly in the hospital, we still had Demerol and codeine mm -hmm. and at home, we had very few options or, you know, availability of medications. But across the country, there had begun to be some use of Brompton solution, which of course was, you know, kind of inspired by work in, in the UK with, um, with St. Christopher's and other hospices there. Mm -hmm. And as a nurse, of course, I was glad to see anything happening for pain. But also as a nurse, what I began to see is this, you know, magical thing people called Brompton solution that, yes, it was probably better than what I had, nothing. Um, but what I also saw was all of the side effects that went along with taking the Bromptons, you know, the incredible, for so many patients, terrible issues of drowsiness, of nausea, constipation. Uh, um, it was a very inexact science. Um, the other thing that was, you know, now I look back and think was sort of amusing is that at the time, you know, there were only a handful of pharmacies that would, would make Brompton solution, but I can promise you that every one of them had a different recipe. So you had no idea what was in it. Right, exactly. Interesting not, thing, right? Not a lot of control going on back then. Not a lot of control. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we had no idea what we were giving. Um, and, and certainly, along with a little good, there were a lot of harms. And so I began to, you know, do some research and explore what might be better ways. And, and that's when I came upon some research that was being done of comparing um, just the, the very first liquid morphine, plain liquid morphine compared to Brompton's. And so that's how I began to begin to connect with some leading pharmacists and physicians and other nurses around the country who were primarily working in the early hospice programs um, to begin to ask these questions. And so I think that was also a key step in my career because it was the first time that research sounded at all useful to me. Um, no, I didn't want to be a researcher. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to do anything academic. I just wanted to provide better care to patients. And I you know, realized that I, I really did have this passion for 
beyond just caring for one patient at a time, but, you know, what I might do as a nurse to be a change agent, that we could impact policies or procedures or create programs or systems so that many patients would get better care. Um, and so I did that study of, you know, Brompton's or versus morphine solution. And it, it was a bridge, I think, to helping me see that the, there was now evolving this community of people like me who cared a lot about these issues. This was um, my very first professional meeting I ever attended was in 1984, and it was the National Hospice Organization meeting. Um, so this was before, you know, I found my community of the Hospice Nursing Association, and, and of course now the, you know, the amazing organization that we have of HPNA. So, um, but it, it was, you know, I think not only did I find my calling, I was beginning to find my people, right? Which mm -hmm. is really important that, you know, right. anyone who ever goes to a local chapter meeting or an annual meeting, you, you know, you walk into the room and it's, it's certainly nice to hear these presentations and have this you know, great content. But what's really nice is to feel like you're with your people, that, that you are in a room or a convention center or a, you know, a, an evening chapter meeting where you're with people who have the same passion and the same calling that you do. So research, clinical care, um, we haven't touched on LNIC, Betty, and I, I think that this is uh, a great segue into applying research and what you can do to find your people to express, sure. you know, continue this mission. So with that, would you share with us LNIC? Sure. Mm -hmm. About, um, you know, probably starting around 1995 or 1996, there began to be a lot of activity in this new area of palliative care. And so I began to see groups forming uh, like the Center to Advance Palliative Care, CAPSI, um, the Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, you know, HPNA. The, there were these various communities and groups, the Project on Death in America. There were, you know, a lot of things happening. And, um, and I saw that there was a lot of attention being given to educating physicians. And so the EPIC program, for example, had started mm -hmm. educating physicians in palliative care. And so, you know, my initial response was, wait a minute, where's nursing in all of this? You know, where's the, where are the projects? Where's the funding? Where's the focus on, on preparing nurses? And nurses are the largest profession of of the clinicians at the bedside. You know, nurses are everywhere. The nurses are in long-term care and residential care and in ICUs and hospitals and everywhere. <clears throat> there's a seriously ill person, there's nursing. And so how, how is it we did not have, you know, a major national effort toward nursing education? And so I set out to try to find some funding to create a national training program for nurses. And I can't begin to tell you how many no's I heard. <laughs> how many doors were closed. Um, <clears throat> virtually every, you know, every, every way where I looked, every ask, um, I was told either nurses don't need this information or I was told nurses already know this. And so there was a good, you know, about four years of intense effort um, of just trying to make the case for the need for nursing education and palliative care. 
Um, I finally encountered the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which at the time was funding a lot of new activities, including a lot of medical education. And I, you know, made my case there of, you know, RWJ should be funding something for nursing education. And again, I was told no. Um, finally, I wore them down and, you know, they just got tired of me asking, I think. And they would not fund the project, you know, later to become known as LNEC. But instead, they funded a three-year project, which was basically, you know, proved to us that there's a need. And so in 1997, I received the first funding um, for a project called Strengthening Nursing Education in End-of-Life Care. You know, end-of-life was very much the language at the time before, mm -hmm. you know, the broader concept of palliative care. And <clears throat> I recruited my first staff member, Rose Varani, who still is working with me now, um, you know, 24 years later. That <laughs> um, what Rose and I set out to do was to make the case to, to you know, show me the data, to really show there was a need. And so what we did in that three-year project is we reviewed all of the nursing textbooks used in schools of nursing to try to document, you know, what percent of, of education was really focused on any topic whatsoever related to this area. We surveyed practicing nurses, we surveyed faculty in schools of nursing. You know, we did all kinds of fact finding to just make our case. And in fact, what we found through that process was of course there were enormous needs. Our textbook reviews showed that only 2% of the content in the leading books of nursing in the country had any relationship to anything related to palliative care and we were that's a very generous two percent if you took away the pain chapters in books or the ethics chapters you would come pretty close to zero um so we 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 finally you know three years later had abundant data about nursing education nursing schools nursing faculty practicing nurses textbooks we reviewed the content in the licensing exam the NCLEX we you know we tried to look in every corner of our profession and make the case for the need and finally um we were successful and so the rwj foundation gave us funding to create one curriculum and to hold five training courses and that was going to be the end that was going to solve <laughs> everything right <laughs> so um we created one curriculum which was uh, what we now call our LNET core curriculum. And we held five national training courses, all which were filled literally overnight. There was this desperate hunger by nurses to get this training and to be able to go back and use it in their own setting. And, you know, essentially, you know, sort of the rest is history. <laughs> now, you know, 20 years later, um, for example, after we held our first course, I had wonderful pediatric nurses, pediatric nurses come and say to me, thank you for including pediatrics. We can see where you've included children. However, pediatric nurses do not want to step to sit and listen to a bunch of adults, you know, conversation. <laughs> yep. We want peds only. We want our own course. Um, so <clears throat> what has happened since then, you know, over now these 23 years is we now have created LNIC curricula for pediatrics, geriatrics, critical care. Um, we have created 
uh, entire our newer curriculum, Elnick for you know, communication. We um, then, you know, along the way, um, we began to have people contact us from other countries and say, you know, we really need this in, you know, in our country. Or we would have faculty who were trained in the LNET course and say, gee, my nursing school has an affiliation with a country in Africa, and we go there every summer with our students. We would love to take LNET there. So we begin to have a lot of requests internationally. And again, that was something we never imagined. And so the LNEC project has really just taken on not only a life of its own, but sort of many lives of its own. Um, and we now have um, our LNEC core pediatric critical care, geriatric communication, and an entire curriculum focused on advanced practice nursing. Because mm -hmm. again, you know, a huge part of our palliative care world now is through all the advanced practice nurse who need a very different curriculum. Um, and so we just last year, um, 2019 in the fall, had a 20 year celebration of all of the ELNIC, actual ELNIC courses. And we now have, we're very close to 250 national ELNIC training courses have been held. We've trained um, upwards, getting close to 40,000 trainers who have then gone back and trained over 740,000 other professionals using the ELNIC curriculum. Um, we've been in all 50 states and early last year, early in 2019, we reached our 100th country and 11th language translation. So, um, it, you know, we all of course feel that we have just you know, jumped on and have been holding on for this wild ride because um, we never, it wasn't, there was not a grand plan. You know, there was not a grand vision. We had no idea what we were doing most of the time. But what we've tried to do is just to listen to the need to collaborate with as many people as we can and to just constantly be guided by, you know, what can we best do to prepare nurses and others to really change the practice of care for seriously ill people across all settings and ages and diseases. And, um, you know, people often use the phrase, you know, we were, we were building the airplane while we were flying it. And I think that applies very much to our field of palliative nursing and certainly to LNEC. We, we didn't have, you know, 10 years to sit and just develop everything perfectly um, because people were very sick and dying poorly from the first day. Um, and so we had to mm -hmm. get in there and just start doing and building and inventing and reinventing, um, you know, while also trying to meet the needs. And so, um, so that's, you know, really been the power of Elnec. We've many incredible collaborators over these years. Certainly, you know, we value greatly the uh, HPNA has joined us in holding courses around the country. Um, we've worked very closely. Our partner in Elnick since the first day we began has been the um, American Association of Colleges of Nursing, AACN, mm -hmm. because we knew we needed their voice to influence schools of nursing. And just three years ago, led by Polly Mazanak, one of our mm -hmm. Elnick team members, we now have created a curriculum for all undergraduate schools of nursing that launched about three years ago, we now have close to 400 
schools of nursing in the country that are at some point of implementing this curriculum for their undergraduate students. And then last fall, in fall of 2019, we created and implemented the ELNIC graduate curriculum, now already making its way into about 140 graduate programs in nursing. With all of our work with schools of nursing, undergraduate and graduate, supported by the Cambia Foundation. And to me, that's you know an enormous, enormous victory because I think I would venture to say anyone listening to this conversation um, can identify with the fact that most every one of us on this phone call um, started our practice with no preparation to do the work of palliative nursing. And most of us have been you know, learning as we go. But what we have known for a very long time is that patients would get much better care if the day nurses entered their practice. They came prepared with a background of information in palliative care. And so, you know, I think it, it is a better world when nurses get this content as a part of their nursing education. And so we're really excited about this opportunity to work with schools of nursing and to see palliative care. I mean, what do nurses do? They do palliative care, all nurses across all disciplines. So even though only some nurses will become specialists in palliative care, you know, every bedside nurse needs the principles of palliative care to provide good care to patients and families. Betty, your story of uh, LNIC is such a, a humbling example and a remarkable example of perseverance. I can't imagine where we would be today if you would have taken no for an answer. And thank goodness we don't have to imagine that because you never took no for your answer. And uh, 747,000 nurses later, we're in a better spot. Thank you. <laughs> I think nurses are good at not taking no, but um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of have the, you know, the very hard skull to prove because I, I do feel like I spent a good four years mostly banging my head against the wall. And, um, but that's what nurses do. You know, nurses persist. And, um, and, and, you know, I've not done any of this alone. I have done everything I've talked about today has been because I did it holding very tightly to my colleagues. Uh, mm -hmm. Many who have been there since the beginning, you know, Patrick Coyne, you know, Judy Pace. I mean, there's so many people, you know, my colleagues in pediatrics and geriatrics, you know, there, there are way too many to mention, but, you know, it's much easier to not take no. It's much easier to keep banging your head against the wall if you're surrounded by your colleagues who you also consider your friends who are there to support you. And, you know, we are so fortunate in our field because, you know, I am inspired. I'm inspired by, I sit in our LNET courses and I hear Cheryl Daxton and Vanessa Batista talk mm -hmm. about their work in pediatrics. And I hear, you know, our amazing colleagues talk about geriatrics and I walk into the room and here, you know, advanced practice, and, and I learn every time. I, I learn from my colleagues, and 
if it were not for, you know, literally hundreds of nurses who have served as faculty, helped us create curricula, opened doors for us, you know, we would not have been able to do any of this work. It is, if ever there's a team effort, I, you know, I think Elnick has, has been a team effort because it has taken, you know, a huge commitment by a lot of people to be able to do the work that we've been able to do. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question here, Betty. Uh, what do you find to be the most rewarding aspect of your career? Um, you know, I would say that I, I probably would have answered that question very differently, you know, when I'd been a nurse for one year or five years or even 20 years or even 30 years. But, you know, at I think uh, I think when I hit the 40 year mark, so um, I think, you know, in 2017, I started seeing the world a little bit differently. And, you know, I increasingly I'm becoming aware that my greatest contributions now are really in mentoring the next generation. That to me, the most wonderful, exciting thing is when I see the newer nurses in our fields that are doing such amazing things. Uh, one of the projects I've been able to be a part of the last five years is the Cambia Sojourners Project, which is a leadership development that is training uh, physicians, nurses, and now all professionals across disciplines to become leaders in palliative care. And, you know, when I can see um, nurses just beginning their careers or nurses 10 years into their careers become leaders, launch programs, you know, become advanced practice nurses, um, you know, start new projects and programs. Uh, that's the exciting part for me. Um, I, you know, one of the other, you know, wonderful gifts of my life has been the last few years, I've been the editor of the Journal of Hospice and Palliative Nursing. And I can tell you that, you know, I'm at the place in my career where it's a lot more fun to help someone else write their paper published <laughs> than it is just to agonize and write my own. Um, and so that's fun. You know, that's exciting. I've, mm -hmm. you know, one of the best uh, sort of, you know, great days are when I have a nurse contact me and say, you know, I've never, I've never published before, but gee, you know, I work in this hospice and we're doing this wonderful innovative project or I'm an advanced practice nurse and, you know, I've got this great case that, you know, I think might be good for the journal. Um, you know, I see those, I, I get to talk with those nurses and then I get to see them go from, you know, I've never done it to doing it and doing it so well. And so, you know, I can tell you from my sort of vantage point, you know, at a later point in my career, you know, we are in really good shape. I'll tell you that. There are so many really smart, dedicated, committed nurses in our field now um, that are well prepared to continue to lead this work in the future. And so I, you know, really, I think it's part of my, my dedication in making our work with nursing school such a high priority is that I, you know, just take great joy in seeing the future of our field and 
knowing that there are great, great people early in their careers who are going to continue to do such wonderful work that will take palliative care to a whole new place that, you know, I can't even imagine. Well, I can see how that would be a rewarding aspect. I mean, and I'm hearing you say that we're in a good place. We don't hear that enough, Betty. We don't hear that we are prepared. We are taking action. We are advocating to get in a better place to provide better care. And to hear you say it is, is that's inspiring um, to have those words said that we're doing okay. We're actually doing really good. And, I think we're um, doing great. Yes. I, I think that's, uh, I think that's worth celebrating. We got, you know, we're in the year of the nurse and that, that's really great to hear that we are doing great. So as a nursing profession in the field of palliative care, nursing and palliative care, what recommendations can you give as far as how we can do a better job of advocacy uh, and you know, supporting continued resources to, to advance expert care of serious illness? Um, I do. You know, I do have an opportunity through, you know, various parts of my, my role as a, a researcher um, to sit at a lot of tables where I'm the only nurse. Um, and I find myself often shocked at the absence of nursing. I find myself shocked that the number of times that nurses aren't recognized or included or that a nursing voice isn't there. And uh, so I still think we have a lot of work to do in terms of the broader health community, health policy, um, recognizing how valuable the role of nursing and the voice of nursing is in public health. Um, so I think it's incredibly important that nurses are very vocal, that nurses are speaking up, telling their story writing letters to the editor of their newspaper, uh, you know, contacting the legislators, uh, speaking out in public events, because as nurses, we have the most intimate relationship with our patients and we have a bird's eye view. You know, we, we are so fortunate to be able to be in relationship with patients and families in such a way that we really can speak um, and we can really share our stories. If nurses mm -hmm. did nothing beyond tell the stories they know, right? Mm -hmm. um, that alone, you know, would change things. And so, I, you know, nurses need to, to boldly speak up. I, you know, sometimes nurses don't realize how valuable they are. They don't realize how much they have to share. And so, you know, as a nurse, be that voice. Um, tell people what you know, what you have seen, what you know to be true, because it is just so important. And it's amazing, you know, the number, like I've said in some major national meetings where, you know, I've just sat through four hours where everyone has just talked about, you know, care within a hospital. And I'm shocked. Like, 
patients spend a few hours in the hospital. They spend their lives in their living rooms, right? Mm -hmm. they, you mm -hmm. know, they spend their lives. Who's really providing the care of seriously ill people in this country? Not me, not you. It's a family caregiver. And, you know, in, I do a lot of research and work in area of family caregiving. We have sort of a little inside joke now, which is every time we say, oh, who's the, you know, who's the family caregiver? Our sort of little inside humor is, oh, right, it's the person who's older and sicker than the patient, right? I mean, right. That's the reality of health. Right. right so, you know, I find myself, you know, sometimes in situations where I have to speak and say, you know, I, I understand, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the challenges of, of the hospital, but have we spent any time talking today about what's happening in people's living rooms and bedrooms? Are we, you know, we're talking about the workforce of healthcare, but, you know, what about the family caregiver who never gets a day off? I was at a National Academy of Sciences meeting recently, and, um, and you know, the, they do a wonderful job of inviting the public, and I had just presented on family caregiving, and a, at the first break, a woman walked up to me and said, you know, thank you for the things you've just shared. I came today as the daughter, and I haven't had a day off in four years, right? Like, that's reality. So, you know, as nurses, we need to be that voice to say, this is, you know, this is great information, or we need to, you know, respect and value the opinions of everyone, but we always need to be there to say, well, now let's talk about what this is really like for people at home. What is it like to be parents of a seriously ill child? You know, what is it like to manage your mother's care with dementia for 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, while mm -hmm. caring for your school-aged children and father who's post-stroke and try to keep your job. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think nurses are, it is, you know, it is Florence Nightingale, you know, told us, <laughs> you know, Use your voice, use data, advocate, um, you know, make some noise. And that's, you know, I don't think you can be a good palliative care nurse without being a good social activist because we all need to be speaking for the necessary changes. Um, I, I've recently sort of, you know, jokingly talked about in the 1960s or, you know, early 70s, I remember the sort of Vietnam era and, um, and I remember sort of a bumper sticker that said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I, you know, we should reprint that bumper sticker and then put, you know, palliative care nursing on the bottom of it now. Because, like, if you are awake in the year 2020 and paying attention at all to what's happening in healthcare, you should be outraged, right? You should be Absolutely. outraged. You should be outraged at what patients and families have to do at home. You should be outraged at how hard it is for people to get good pain management. You should be outraged that we're still having to fight for basic care that patients and families need. And we need to use that outrage for, you know, for the greater good, right? We, you know, if, if nurses don't speak for a better way of care, you know, who will do that? It's, you know, we, we've been given this opportunity and we need to use our voice. So Betty, what do you see or what is your greatest hope 
in closing in today's podcast, what would you tell our listeners your greatest hope for the future of palliative care would be? You know, um, in a, sort of every course we ever run and every research project I ever do, we kind of start with these definitions, like the National Consensus Project defines palliative care in this way. The World Health Organization defines palliative care in this way. And I always share those definitions, and then I always say, and my favorite definition is palliative care is the kind of care that you would want if you or someone you love is seriously ill. The end. That's it. So, you know, at the end of the day, what am I advocating for? I'm advocating for the kind of care I would want. I'm advocating for the kind of care I expected when my mother had lung cancer, right? And so, you know, it is at at some times, you know, seems like an enormous ask. And then at other times, it seems like a simple ask. It's not too much, right? It's not too much to say, if I have a seriously ill child, I don't want him to die in pain. (laughs) If I have a seriously Mm -hmm. ill child, I wish somebody would come in and support, you know, my other children. Like, Mm -hmm. these are not enormous asks. They are asks of humanity. They are what we should expect. And so that's what I want. You know, I want for other people the kind of care I would expect for myself. Um, And I also, you know, maybe sort of a good way to end would be, you know, I've talked about big things. Like, I want to change the world, right? We should. But, you know, (laughs) I'll also tell you sort of a little secret, and that is when we started our very first LNIC course, when we held that very first course with those very first nurses in the room, as a team, we all said, you know what? We hope that big things happen, right? We hope that we can make a big splash. But what we also said is if one person in this room, one nurse, just give me one, if one nurse goes home from this course and goes back to work, and provides better care for one patient, we are going to throw a party and celebrate, right? Because that's enough, right? And we've, so 20 something years later, that's what the LNEC team says. We say, if we've, you know, knocked ourselves out and drug our faculty colleagues across the country (laughs) and held a course and kept a hundred people in a room, you know, for two days. If one person goes home and provides better care for one single patient, you know, if one person dies easier, then we are so happy. We have done our work and every other good thing that happens is the icing on the cake, right? Absolutely. So that's what this is about, right? That if one person listening to this call can go back and just do a little better job, make the difference in one life, done, right? The, the whole reason of having that HPNA, done. Um, and if we do more than that, then let's celebrate. That's, that's what this is about. Thank you, Betty. What to end well. With that, this concludes episode nine of HPNA's Podcast Corner with today's guest, Betty Farrell. Thank you so much to our listeners, and thank you, Betty for everything. Simply thank you.
For additional information about this podcast and palliative nursing educational resources, please visit us at advancingexpertcare.org. Thank you for joining. You know HPNA offers volume discounts on certification exams and HPNA memberships? The Employer Partner Program was established to partner with employers to support your nursing care teams through education and training. To learn more about the Employer Partner Program and find out if your organization qualifies for volume discounts, visit advancingexpertcare.org backslash employer partner.